Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Chat, a podcast brought to you by Climate Ambrose. I'm James Hurley, Enterprise Editor at The Times, and I'm your host for this series. From startup to sale, the course of building a business never did run smooth. And in this series, we go behind the scenes, exploring the highs and lows which come with growing a business at every stage of the journey. Today, I'm joined by Nick Cook, co-founder of Goat, a global social media marketing agency powered by influencers. Yes, that's those people who earn a fortune posting images and videos on the likes of Instagram and TikTok. The biggest influencer in the world right now is probably a guy called Mr. Beast, who's a YouTuber. And the truth is, a brand paid north of £6 million for that one spot, and it's the best media value of the year. You compare it to a Super Bowl spot, it's far more effective, far far more trackable. I'm still shocked at the numbers. They just get bigger and bigger year on year. Since founding the agency in 2015, with no outside funding, and alongside Aaron Shepard and Harry Hugo, the company has grown to more than 190 staff, opened three international offices, and is working with everyone from startup companies to global brands, including Dell, Headspace, Fevertree, and Wayfair. The weird and wonderful world of social media influences can be a baffling one for those of us of a certain age, including your humble host, but I'm sure Nick can guide us through it, explain how he's built a successful business on the back of it, and perhaps talk a little about trends in social media that businesses of all shapes and sizes might want to be aware of. So Nick, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. So Goat is a leading influencer marketing agency. Tell us how it all began and also why the name Goat. Football fans familiar with social media might be able to guess, but tell us a little bit about it in your own words. <laughs> so I suppose the the journey began in 2015. Well, the business was founded in 2015. Um, I suppose it began a few years before when I, I joined a business called Sport Lobster. Sport Lobster was a sports-focused social media platform, an app, and I joined as an unpaid intern, actually, when I was about 21. Um, And that business was founded by a guy called Aaron Shepard, who's now my business partner. And really, that that business grew incredibly quickly. And my job, eventually, after about two years, was managing a marketing team made up of 40-odd people. And really, our job was to drive app installs. And we tried lots of different things. And so for me, it was a great learning ground in terms of identifying what kind of marketing channels are effective and less effective. And uh, we sort of stumbled across influencers quite early doors, largely because lots of members of our team were, you know, mid-20s and had these sports fan pages. So they might be a Man United fan with 50,000 Twitter followers, or they might be a Chelsea fan with 200,000. And to be honest, we didn't really know the power of those accounts and neither did they. And we just started paying them 20, 30 quid, put a link in their content and saw if it drove people to the platform and and saw if it converted. And for the most part, it converted incredibly well. And as a sort of merged marketing channel, it was our most effective acquisition channel. But lots of them didn't work. And and some of them worked sometimes. And so we we started just questioning why that was and, and started collecting a huge amount of data to inform our our strategy. At the same time, we had a load of uh, sort of tier one celebrities and athletes on the platform who were ambassadors. And I remember the CEO, Andy, coming to me and saying, here's a list of athletes. I want you to contact them and their managers. And we want them to be ambassadors. And it was LeBron and Messi and Ronaldo. And we all thought he was crazy. But I managed to set up a meeting with Ronaldo's agent 
um, or his commercial manager. And Andy convinced him to be an ambassador. And we, we thought the first time he posted about us, the app would crash and, and you know, that would be, we, we would have succeeded. And actually, the first post did work, but from then on, it just fell completely flat. And these fan accounts with 100,000 followers delivered more media value and more sign-ups than Ronaldo, who was and still is the most followed human being on the planet on social media. So that's sort of where the light bulb went off. Uh, I suppose the name GOAT really, I mean, it means greatest of all time. Back then, uh, it was a very American thing. And we thought we were, you know, had a playful name, a bit under the radar. But I mean, it's become sort of colloquial in the UK as well. And now we're, we're very much owning it. But it's also a real kind of social media speak. So it lends itself quite nicely. I think there's a very nice irony there, isn't there? Because, you know, Ronaldo, I think you can say certainly maybe is the GOAT or certainly is a GOAT. I think it's I think it's fair to say. But one place where, you know, an ordinary person on social media can beat him is by getting more engagement by the sound of it. Why do you think that happened, that a, a popular fan account could get more engagement than someone like Cristiano Ronaldo? I think ultimately it's about authenticity. What we realised is that when you go through Ronaldo's feed, 90% of posts are sponsored. The other 10%, you can sort of tell they're not posted by him. It's very generic. And the way people respond to it is is very different to how they respond to even you or I when we post, because they know it's us and they know we're, we're not posting necessarily for commercial gain. That's really the crux of it. And that's the crux of, of what we do and how to deliver successful campaigns on social. It's about understanding uh, who the audience is and understanding how to use niche accounts. We always talk about niche content to niche audiences at scale and it's almost that the more specific a niche an influencer account the more engaged their audience and the more relevant the brand that you're promoting is to that audience the more it's going to work and that's fantastic and a really good explanation can you talk us through a little bit about what i suppose what your elevator pitch is because as you say, you can sort of really visualise how this is going to work with, you know, an engaged fan account for, I don't know, Chelsea or Arsenal or Manchester United or something like that. When you're pitching to a client such as Formula E or Google or British Airways, they're all people you have worked with. What's your sell to them about how this is going to work? Well, I think that the overall reason we're, we exist and we're, we're growing as quickly as we are is that the macro situation is that consumers are completely transforming the way they behave and, and the way they consume content. TV became the primary advertising channel for major brands 30 or 40 years ago when TVs became affordable. And creative agencies and media agencies were sort of, you know, the madmen days were, were scaling massively and primarily focusing all of their efforts around TV. And the situation now is that consumers don't watch TV, especially if they're under 30. And if they're under 20, they're almost certainly watching YouTube and TikTok. And really, the big agency holding groups haven't adapted and they're still primarily positioned to build creative and buy media through linear TV. And therefore, the brands that they work with and they represent are also really struggling to transform digitally. And so there's, there's a host of smaller disruptive agencies, I suppose, like us, who understand that and understand the need for these brands to, to build out social first strategies. And really, if you look at the brands in any category who are doing amazingly well over the last few years, take fashion, for example, look at ASOS, you look at Boohoo, all these kind of social first, influencer first, D2C fashion brands are absolutely killing it. You know, all the high street retailers who haven't adapted and digitally transformed 
are going out of business, like Topshop, for example. Um, so that's the sort of macro picture. Really, we're, a, we're an influencer agency, but really we're a social agency driven by influencers. So we help these brands who are struggling to make that transition build out a social first strategy. It, it's about a younger audience, but it's really just about you know, not losing ground and gaining competitive advantage. But still, we go and meet so many CMOs who, who don't see it still. And to be honest, it's going to be too late because it's, it's happening now. Do you think it's understood the level to which social can actually be useful from a business to business or business to, to trade person channel? Because as an outsider, I often think of it as, as, as something that's aimed at consumers. And as you say, you know, fashion, hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, it sounds like it's really becoming useful from a business to business perspective, even on channels like TikTok, right? Yeah. And there, there are lots of misconceptions. That is definitely one of them. Another one is you know, you can only use social to engage a younger audience, especially TikTok, which is completely untrue. We run a huge number of consumer campaigns that are targeting consumers in verticals that you just would never imagine. Uh, social would be the route to, to do it by. But also, it, you know, Dell is a very good example of a, a client of ours. Half the work we do for Dell is around B2B. It's around targeting decision makers in businesses of 500 plus people. So very, I suppose, small pool of target audience, but very high quality. And we, we do loads on LinkedIn and um, we use paid media very effectively, as well as just using organic influencers. So you can be extremely targeted. But yeah, that is absolutely a, a common misconception. Probably, you know, 70% of what we do is still consumer facing. But when people think of influencer, they think of, you know, someone in Love Island, which is, is absolutely not really what an influencer is. Well, talking of Love Island, because I think that's I think that's spot on. That is exactly what the average person thinks. Of, isn't <laughs> is it? that what you think? Well, well, it's, it's just it's, it's what the image that comes to mind, isn't it? It's uh, someone in on a poolside in Dubai or something, isn't it? Yeah. When, when you think of an influencer, and it's you know it's certainly an attractive career path for people. And given that, people will want to sort of make their numbers look as good as possible, or even flatter their numbers to win work on sponsorships. That's kind of natural behaviour, isn't it? How do you go about working out who is a good influencer to work with and who isn't really it comes down to data for the most part um, i talked about sport lobster we, we collected data and since we started goat we built out we have a team of engineers building out a crm system so proprietary technology uh, which is an internal tool but every time we've used hundreds of thousands of influencers and every time anyone posts for one of our brands the data is input back into the crm so it's, it's a number of things. One is demographics. What does the audience actually look like? How can we make sure it's relevant? Two is performance data. If we use them, we know their audience is right, but do they drive a good cost per impression or engagement or view or click? If we've used them to sell products around Black Friday for this brand, did it work? Did we drive a good return on ad spend and CPA? So there's sort of the data piece where we're miles ahead of our competitors because we've just been doing it longer. We've, we've worked with more brands. We've got more of that performance data. And then there's the kind of human qualitative side and really understanding who is on brand and who is a good uh, representation of the brands we're promoting. And some brands, really our clients, it's sort of a sliding scale. Some only care about performance and selling products. They don't really care how you do it. And some really are just far more focused around brands. And it, it's sometimes it's tied to, you know, is it a top of the funnel campaign or is it a bottom of the funnel? But every brand and every campaign sits somewhere slightly different on that sliding scale. 
And is that human intervention is part of that looking out for reputational risk along the lines you were just mentioning there. So, you know, making sure that the person that, that you're selecting is not going to get the brand in hot water because they've previously tweeted some support for something or engaged in some argument or something on, on, on social media that wouldn't fit with, uh, in inverted commas, the brand's values. Yeah, that, that is a, a critical piece. And again, some brands care far more about that, but certainly that's a key, you know, for clients of ours like Unilever, they're absolutely all over that. And we need to ensure that every single influencer that we even recommend, let alone use, has been vetted multiple times. And, and we know that they are incredibly on brand, but also brand safe. Uh, and you always have, you know, that there are issues for clients where we're, we're having influencers at events and maybe they turn up 10 minutes late and then it's up to us to evaluate whether they are unreliable or whether that was a mistake and and whether we should put a mark against them in our CRM. So it's everything from reliability, price, all the way through to yeah brand safety and have they said some rude words before or whatever it might be. And to take you back to the start of the journey, how much of a risk did it feel to, to strike out on your own with this business? Because you're in a secure job and an interesting one at that, working with all sorts of celebrities. Why did you take the plunge to go out on your own and, and did that require some bravery to do that? I think um, we knew that we'd, we'd been at that business for a number of years. I think the dynamic between the... Th- I saw two co-founders at Goat. One is Aaron, who was the co-founder of that business, and one is Harry, who was in my team. So we all managed each other at Sport Lobster, and we worked very closely and very effectively, but the dynamic was obviously different to being equal partners at Goat. I, I think we, we knew that we were doing a great job of driving customers to the platform we owned, but they weren't sticking. We knew that there were flaws with the product and we we knew that maybe it wasn't going to be the unicorn that we thought it was when we started i think it was also certainly harry and i were very conscious we were working for this business that was a classic tech business it was pre-revenue raising loads of money and we just felt like that wasn't the model that the thing we did next whether it was our business or not we wanted it to be revenue driving we wanted to hire people based on work that was actually coming in. We didn't want to rely on external investment early doors. So we were having all these kind of conversations. At the same time, we we knew that we'd uncovered something special in that we'd found a media channel that was more effective than everything else we were doing and no one else was doing it. At the same time, we were using agencies when we were at Sport Lobster and we just saw they were so unreliable. Pretty much anyone we hired whether it was for SEO or you know performance marketing, sold us one thing and then delivered another. All of that combined made us think, hang on a minute, we can go and do this and we should grow very quickly because we can actually do it. And part of the reason GOAT grew very quickly in the early days and now is that we used our understanding of what each influencer could drive, could collectively drive when we sold the campaign to guarantee results. So we'd say, you know, pay us, in, in the first few weeks, it was pay us £5,000, we'll guarantee you this many clicks to your website. And we could do that because we had the data and we just went for it. And it worked great and we won a £10,000 campaign the next week and, and it just scaled from that point onwards. And actually, our model is, is still based on that premise. We still guarantee results even though the campaigns are now £5 million campaigns rather than £5,000. And you've grown very quickly, so you've got about 112 staff now, haven't you? 
and you've done that certainly in the early years under your own steam. What was it that you didn't like about that kind of like almost, I guess, unicorn? You mentioned the word unicorn, unicorn economics, where you take on lots and lots of external investment and you don't really need to worry about making a profit or even bringing in lots of revenues for many years. It's all about driving customer numbers. You've taken a much more traditional business approach, bring revenues in. You didn't take on outside investment for the first few years of the business. Why was that? Why do you, did you prefer that approach? Well, first of all, we, we've got 190 now, which is insane. And that 112 number you quoted is not an old one. Uh, we've hired about 80 new people in the last sort of 10 months. But I think the reason, I think the reason we love that model is partly because we saw the flaws in in the other way of doing it previously we we wanted to obviously maximize equity value and we wanted to in the first few weeks we just all had a laptop we were in a co-working space and to be honest that was the funnest funnest time of the business just sitting down running very small campaigns seeing them go really well investing everything in them in terms of time and effort and just having conversations because even when we were pre setting up GOAT, people in the sports industry knew that we were the guys who had access to these influencers and we knew what we were doing. So we had Adidas and, and lots of major brands coming to us, contacts we'd met in the industry saying, you know, can I use that influencer or can, can you run a campaign for me? So we knew that we could win work. And to be honest, within a few weeks, we were making more than our salary previously anyway. And that's what made us think, well, you know what, now we can hire our first couple of people and we don't need to raise money. It wasn't necessarily we sat down day one and said, right, we're going to bootstrap this. It was just we realised that if we kept delivering amazing results, we could achieve what we wanted to achieve without without raising. I think a lot of business owners will uh, relate to the point you were making there about perhaps enjoying the very early stages of the business the most and finding that very <laughs> sort of fun and engaging. Now you're at 190 staff. What, what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of getting to that scale fairly quickly, really? What, what, what have you found most difficult? Well, I, I think for me, I think if you spoke to myself, Aaron and Harry, we'd probably all have slightly different answers. For me, uh, I, I, well, we found a go in 2015. In 2018, I moved to New York to uh, set up and grow our US business. We didn't really have any US clients. I just went over there myself with my partner and got a little WeWork room with four desks and, and just started emailing everyone I knew saying, do you know anyone in the US and in New York? And, and we, we grew quickly there, but we hired about 12 people in that first year. We had a, a big office and things were going great in that first sort of eight months. And then I realized that the culture within the team, we just made too many sort of 22 year old hires. I hadn't gone with anyone else uh, who had been at Go or had a bit more experience. And we just realized that we needed to start again, basically. And so we had to be quite ruthless and and sort of half the team in terms of numbers and and just start again. And to be honest, it was the best thing we've ever done as a business. Our US business is now about 40% of our overall revenue and our, our biggest clients globally are in the US and it, it'll, be, it'll be bigger than our, our UK business within a few months. But that, you know, as, as a, an entrepreneur, but also as a human being, that was incredibly difficult. Not just that moment, but um, moving abroad and, and kind of building a team from scratch in a completely different environment. Also having had business partners and then suddenly doing it by yourself was, for me, the, the hardest moment, I'd say. And did you take any lessons from that process of having to sort of downsize so you could grow again? 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly learned a lot from it. Whether I did it the right way, I, I would maintain I did, but I'm not sure there is a right way. Uh, it's always going to be unbelievably hard and painful and you're never going to be the good guy. But I, I think as, as an entrepreneur, I, I think really just trusting your gut is the key. Even in our, our, any market, really, whenever there's, there's an issue, whether it's a client issue or whether it's a staff issue or just something you feel deep down you need to make a tough decision on to pivot the business or change your offering, whatever it might be. I think certainly for me, I can sort of feel it inside me and it makes me uncomfortable. And then I sort of realise why I'm feeling uncomfortable and then I have to act on it and it's hard, but you kind of have to do it. And I think in the early couple of years, having not done that before and not led a team and had to make those decisions it probably takes longer to realise why you're feeling uncomfortable and also deal with it quickly enough. And I think it's interesting, across the board, we, we have management training for all of our managers. And one of the, the things we implemented a couple of years ago is if you need to have a tough conversation with someone, as long as it's not like, you know, sacking someone, but you need to give negative feedback or, or have a tough conversation, do it immediately. Don't put it off. As long as you're prepared for the conversation... Do it that day, do it within a couple of hours, just front up to it because it's always more effective. And you spoke a little bit about, you know, having young staff and having only a load of 22 year olds can maybe be too much. But the business presumably skews quite young anyway, still in terms of uh, its, its profile. What what challenges and benefits does, does that bring to the company having a, a very young workforce? Lots. I think, um, well, I think our average age is probably late 20s and our oldest employee is probably about 40 you know, it's for obvious reasons. We, we, we for the most part, uh, use social media to market to millennials and younger. I think culturally it adds a huge amount of vibrancy. You know, we're we officeless now. We're a fully remote team since the start of COVID across all markets. But when we did have an office and even now over Zoom and Hangout, there's unbelievable energy and positivity and drive. And sometimes the challenge is, is making sure everyone is aware of just how well we're doing and just how big an opportunity this is because a lot of people it's their first job and they sort of assume everywhere they work is going to grow by you know 100% plus revenue year on year and <laughs> and obviously it's not like that so there are lots of challenges that come with it but also people are just incredibly bought in you know the, the age of my two co-founders I'm 32 Aaron's 34 and Harry is still 27 so between us, we're all very different characters, but also slightly different age groups. And I think that also helps build that culture and that dynamic because we're all kind of relatable to different people in the business. But no, it, it's incredible. And it's incredible knowing that, you know, we're working with the biggest brands in the world and they're trusting us with 5-10% of their overall marketing budget, often 100% for some of the smaller companies we're working with. And we're very grateful for that. And, and the results speak for themselves, but I'm sure we'll look back and think, you know, wow. It's interesting that you've gone fully remote because that debate, you know, home working, hybrid working, office working, that rages on and, and shows no sign of, of dying. Have you got any tips on how to, to make that work as a business that's gone fully remote? Well, I suppose the interesting thing on that is that from almost day one of COVID two years ago, our team were constantly asking for an office back <laughs> and I think probably the smartest thing we've done is not listen to them <laughs> because we had to have a slightly longer term vision and we kind of understood that even if lockdowns ended we'd be back in one eventually and we, we got incredibly lucky early doors our London office was a three-year lease and it ended 
about two months into the first lockdown. So we, we were kind of forced into being officeless, but we've constantly delayed moving back into an office in any market. And I think that's definitely the right decision. We're trying now to work out what the plan should be longer term. And I think it might be different in different markets. So the US, we've hired people all over the US. Um, so we're, we're going to continue to have a fully remote team. The advantage there is that you can hire people, you know, every state is culturally very different. We market to consumers across the US. So now we've got employees in Iowa and Florida and all these very culturally different parts of America. And we also have clients spread all over the US. So it's just very different. Even when we had an office in New York, clients would never come to our office because they're not in New York. So it's less required. In the UK, it's so London-centric that having an office was really important because clients could come in and, you know, we paid a lot for an office, but I still think we won a lot of business because of how impressive our office was and our culture when people walked in. So I think we're going to have a space in the UK, not as big as we did before, and it probably have some hot desks and some amazing boardrooms and meeting rooms and sort of be a physical and spiritual hub. And Singapore, we're fully remote now as well. So, you know, we're still figuring it out like everyone, but certainly we're not going to go back to offices full time at any point. And we're encouraging our staff to, you know, we're hiring remote staff very much in the knowledge that we're going to build the best remote team in the agency space going forward. That's that's our vision. Fantastic. And the business has done extremely well, largely under its own steam, as we've been discussing. It's a bit of a milestone, hasn't it, where you've taken some private equity investment from inflection. Can you just talk us through the, the decision process there as to, as to why you did that? Yeah, so we, we did deal with inflection in April 2021. Really, it, it was, we didn't go to market. We were having conversations with various advisors and, and PE houses. We were constantly approached. Really, we did it to to de-risk ourselves. It was a secondary investment, so we took some money off the table. Uh, it was a minority investment. Really, we, we know this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We know everything is perfectly positioned in terms of being the market leader, having a global presence. The market in general is growing insanely quickly. You know, Traditional channels are in decline. Holding groups are panicking because they're, they're losing ground. And our vision really is at the same time, the traditional holding companies are struggling. We want to build the next digital holding group. So you look at WPP and Publicis and all these guys. We know that there are going to be two or three digital social first holding companies. Martin Sorrell's already trying to do it with S4 Capital, uh, who are growing unbelievably quickly. And there are a couple of others. A couple of others we're already as big as. But our vision is to IPO eventually and, and essentially take on the big holding companies. So we did the, the minority deal with inflection to enable us to properly go for it and feel like whatever happens, it's been a success. But uh, yeah, they've been a great partner. Um, it was a crazy sort of five-week process where we were speaking to another private equity house. Uh, we really liked them. They made us an offer. At the same time, we, we met an intermediary who said, you know, your investment deck's amazing. I can get you a few meetings by the end of next week. And we just said, okay, we'll, we'll wait till next week, see if you can. And then we met the inflection guys and, and uh, we had pizza and a beer in a rented boardroom in Green Park because uh, it was sort of in one of those in-between moments of COVID and just really liked them and had a, an informal conversation. They knew what the other firm had offered. They bettered it and we thought they were a better partner for a number of reasons and, and the deal was completed or the DD was done in about four weeks. Yeah, it was a, 
a crazy period and a big learning period for me because it was the first time I'd ever been involved in a private equity deal. It's really interesting to hear you use the word uh, de-risk or phrase de-risk there because, you know, this is, there's a sort of a received wisdom sometimes and perhaps a misconception in entrepreneurial businesses that the entrepreneur has to have the vast majority, I suppose, skin in the game. But actually, you know, I've, I've spoken to, for example, Business Growth Fund about how they like to motivate the entrepreneur by buying out some of their equity because it takes some of the risk away and maybe frees you up to be more ambitious. Has that been your experience? Yeah, that was certainly, um, certainly that was the reasoning behind the deal. And I think, you know, everyone who makes an, a significant investment in any business and the founders are taking money off the table, obviously the concern is, are they going to be demotivated? I think the key is that, again, we all know that we could set up another four or five businesses and everything is going in our favour for this one. And we're all conscious of that. And we're not going to be happy unless we maximise that opportunity. And so that absolutely has been the experience. Yeah, we're all working harder than ever. And, and the numbers this year kind of prove that out in terms of the year on year growth. 2021 will be the biggest sort of percentage increase in terms of EBITDA and, and revenue to date. Given the numbers are, are big, it, it's, it's incredibly impressive. And I suppose now it's all about what does the next phase look like if we're going to IPO? How does that how does that work? When's the right time? So yeah, it, it's the next phase is going to be uh, certainly an interesting one. I was talking to one of your peers before. He was one of the founders of a company called uh, Fanbytes, and I remember him telling me that he was even he was very surprised at the amount of money that some influencers could make. And you know, he's he's someone who's in the industry. What surprises you about this market? Yeah, I mean, the, the, some of the. Um, some of the money brands are willing to pay influencers for media is astonishing. The biggest influencer in the world right now is probably a guy called Mr. Beast, who's a YouTuber. His model is basically, uh, since he started his channel, any money he receives from brands, he puts into creating his next video. He started off doing things like, you know, a brand would pay him £10,000 and he'd sort of hand it out in $50 notes to homeless people in his community and sort of do, do good deeds. And he's at the point now where he created a video remaking Squid Game and the level of production uh, required to create this piece of, you know, 10 minute content is unbelievable. Everyone should go and watch it. And it cost £6 million to make the one video. It drove over 100 million views in about a week and a half, which is more views than people who watch the Super Bowl every year. And we were we, we know his team and him well it, we, we were speaking to him about you know what, what brands should we bring on board to sponsor this piece of content we spoke to a number who were just shocked horrified at the amount of money that it would cost for a sort of one minute integration in the video and a shout out and the truth is a brand paid north of six million pounds for that one spot and it's the best media value of the year you compare it to a Super Bowl spot, it's far more effective, far, far more trackable. I'm still shocked at, at the numbers. They just get bigger and bigger year on year. But versus traditional media, it's starting to just outperform in a way that, you know, you speak to CMOs and, and they understand that their kids are watching YouTube and watching Mr. Beast, but they still struggle to compute that putting 20% of their marketing budget into YouTube makes sense. Whereas I think in a few years' time, they just will understand that. 
It's a fantastic and, and pretty stunning example, actually. So thank you very much for that. And I haven't actually seen that that video yet. So I'll, I'll, I'll be checking out Mr. Beast's take on uh, take on Squid Game. <laughs> this is also an area with no shortage of controversies, isn't it? You know, with concerns about the mental health of the influencers to blurred lines between advertising and editorial. Is there anything you see in industry that, that concerns you? Yeah, I mean, there's lots and we're, we're very conscious of it. You know, I watched a documentary last night that David Bedil made about social media and, and the dangers and, and the harms it can cause. I, th- I think the key is ensuring that the content that influencers create is created in the right way with the right outcome. You know, as I say, probably about 4% of our content are actual lifestyle influencers or reality, you know, star influencers. I think if you look at the sort of cross-section of creators on social, Mr. Beast is actually a pretty good example. His content is primarily focused around doing good and giving back and spreading a positive message. I think obviously in and amongst that, there are creators and celebrities and people who have an influence who are spreading, whether consciously or not, a, a less positive message. I think for the most part, though, if you look at a cross-section of creators and content especially branded content for the most part it's incredibly positive we do a lot of work for brands around social impacts and pride campaigns and black history month campaigns and not just doing work but talking about all the work that that brands are doing and so we are hyper conscious of the negative impact it can have but it can also have a very positive impact to be perfectly honest personally I think the the way to always think about this is, you know, if you have children, how much are you going to encourage them to go on social media? And actually, personally, I won't be giving them a phone and signing them up to Instagram and encouraging them to to use it, uh, which maybe is a little uh, insight into my mindset. But uh, certainly the branded content we're creating is is for the most part very positive. And on that theme, you're trying to do some uh, some positive work around uh, disability and giving disabled people a voice on social media, aren't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we have a, a sister agency called Purple Goat, run by an amazing entrepreneur called Martin Sibley, who happens to have a disability. Uh, he, he was a, and is a disabled influencer, and he came into the Goat office in London to give a sort of lunch and learn session a few years ago. And we got on with him really well and just started having conversations. Really, we identified the issue in that the disabled community make up sort of 20 plus percent of society and less than 1% of uh, advertising or marketing content either features someone with a disability or is marketed to people with disabilities. Uh, and so there's a massive disconnect there. And really, it's because brands are terrified that they'll get it wrong, so they don't do it at all. And so we've set this business up to basically do what GOAT does, deliver social-first advertising campaigns targeting the disabled community. The idea is it's not a diversity inclusion tick box. It's it's positioned to advertise and make money. And the disabled community have great spending power and they want to be marketed to and sold products. And so Martin's done an amazing job of building out that team we're sort of a year and a half in. The numbers are, are, are incredibly strong, much bigger than we were a couple of years in. Yeah, it's just very inspirational. He's you know one of LinkedIn's leaders this year. He was on their TV advert, which is all over the place for a couple of months. So everyone should check out Martin and what Purple Goat are doing. 
That, that's brilliant. And you've, you've spoken about the, the, the goal is eventually a flotation. So in this very ambitious stage of your business, tell me, first of all, I suppose, what keeps you awake at night? What are you worried about? And, and secondly, what are you most excited about for the future of the business? What keeps me awake at night? Well, I think we're, we're a high growth business and we're always, we're very target driven. We're very good as a senior team at setting high targets, both quarterly and monthly. Really, we work to a month by month cadence uh, in terms of billings and revenue targets. So what keeps me at night is always where we are versus that target in the month. Luckily, we've had two record months, so it's I'm sleeping well at the moment. But yeah, it, it's funny. Even when we, you know, when you choose to go on holiday or take a break, you, you have to be quite tactical around when in the month it is. And if you're having a great month, maybe you could sneak away for a week at, at the end of it. Uh, what am I most excited about? I think it's always interesting that I probably get the most excited when I'm interviewing potential new hires and they're asking questions and I'm kind of talking about what we're planning on doing and where we're going in the next 12, 24 months. Yeah, it's just just about growth. It's about recruitment. It's about uh, we're very good at promoting uh, individuals within the business already rather than hiring above them. So you see people who joined at the age of 23 and are now managing 30 people at age 26. Yeah, we always talk about legacy. I'm really excited about looking back eventually and and seeing seeing all of our team members who joined in the first few years and beyond running running social media businesses and influencer businesses in the future and and sort of I'd love to look at the industry and just see our our legacy sort of dotted around. So yeah, that's probably what I'm most excited about. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nick, and uh, really enjoyed speaking to you about a really, a really fascinating part of the industry. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining me today and giving me an insight into the weird and wonderful world of social media influencers. I'll be back next time getting to know Ama Amaje, founder of PlantMade, a hair care company powered by plants that was built on the back of Ama losing her job and surviving a legal threat that almost put her out of business. The littlest thing, like naming your business a certain way, you know, creating an ecosystem or a world that your your customers can buy into, those are some of the things that already set you apart out the gate. This weird naming conventions, like, oh, there's so many levels to this brand. They care so much that they're going to, you know, maybe spend a week trying to name one product <laughs> just to have that naming convention and build that world for you to kind of buy into. Make sure you're following the Entrepreneur's Chat so you're always notified when a new episode is available. Until next time, goodbye. Does running a business leave little time for managing your personal financial affairs? At Climate Hambrose, we know how to simplify life's financial challenges for entrepreneurs. Considering your personal and business ambitions, we partner with you at every stage of your life, taking care of your finances so you can focus on what matters most to you. Find out more about how we can help create a secure financial future for you and your family at climewatthambrose.com.